So Money Episode 256, Michael Schreiber. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of So Money, kicking it off this week with my good friend, Michael Schreiber. Michael and I used to work together. Well, actually, we went to graduate school together at Columbia, followed by some uh, colleague work at thestreet.com. And then later, we kind of worked together at credit.com. And he is currently the editor-in-chief and chief content officer of credit.com. It's a website that serves as your credit advocate. It's also a resource and guide to make sure that you're fully armed with all the info and tools you could possibly want, need in order to fully understand your credit. Want to know how a late payment can affect your score? Need guidance on how to manage your credit? Or maybe you want to see where you stand with your score? Credit.com has you covered and the content from the website is syndicated every day across major media portals including Yahoo, NBC, AOL, MSN, several others. Michael is responsible for leading the editorial and content team made up of more than 30 credit experts. He is an Emmy and DuPont award-winning journalist. Yeah, just a couple of small awards. He's also a producer with 15 years of experience working in print, TV, online media, documentary work. Prior to this role, he served as managing editor of MainStreet.com, the personal finance site owned by TheStreet.com. Michael, like I am, is also a fellow graduate of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, where he also served there as an adjunct professor in the multimedia department. Several, several takeaways from our interview with Michael. You know, we're friends, so we kind of bounced around a lot and shared <laughs> our experiences, shared experiences and um, different perspectives on things that happened simultaneous in our lives, such as me getting laid off from the street.com. We talk about that day. Where was I? Where was he? He tried to save my job. It didn't work. <laughs> now we laugh about it, but of course, at the time it was... Uh, you know, there were only heart palpitations. And uh, we talk about details about his award-winning documentary back in the day when he did this award-winning documentary, The Secret History of the Credit Card. There's a secret history? We talk about Mike's number one financial failure. It's a quote, the epitome of stupid, he told me. And finding your funnel. You're going to have to listen to know what that means exactly, but I promise it's good. Here is Michael Schreiber. Michael Schreiber. Mikey, welcome to the show. Finally. Thanks for much. I'm happy to be here. For those of you who uh, don't know this, Michael and I went to Columbia together, graduate school for journalism. We were, I had the great fortune and privilege of being in your, in our hardcore class together, like the RW1, which is your, you know, your, your group. The and 10 you months. were, you, you were, if I can say the youngest person and also now the most famous person. <laughs> Probably makes you the most resented person in that entire class. <laughs> Present company excluded, right? You don't resent me. I don't know. Um, no, never. you don't resent no, me. I'm a big fan. 
Uh, well, you know, I have to say you and so many others from that class were still really tight. And uh, that was one of the invaluable gifts of going to graduate school. I don't know if today spending uh, you know six figures to go get your journalism degree is really quote unquote worth it. But for everyone, it's an individual choice. And for me, I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, it, it was a great experience. I actually had experience in journalism before going to Columbia. And a lot of people who go to that school, you know, come from newspapers. I, I came from a newspaper or other kind of professional journalism backgrounds, but decide they want to go because they, they want to learn another skill. I went because I really wanted to learn documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking. I was going to say, I would have expected you today being uh, – a documentarian or perhaps the bureau chief for a major network, you fell into personal finance quite by accident. Can you maybe take us back to your career after journalism school and kind of what led you to your current role, which is um, uh, editor-in-chief and chief content officer at credit.com? Sure. So it started after I went to J school. Like I said, I was was a newspaper reporter before and when I went to journalism school, I wanted to get into TV, mainly documentaries. And after school, I worked at ABC News for a while in a long-form television unit, may- making documentaries. But for other television channels, it's one thing that ABC always did. They would make like shows for biography or Discovery Channel, things like that. Um, and so I did that for a while. And eventually, I got a job um, at the New York Times, at New York Times Television, with a group there making episodes of Frontline. And one of the episodes that I worked on was called The Secret History of the Credit Card, which at the time, no one was that psyched to do that show because everyone was thinking, how are we going to show pictures? I mean, how are we going to make this a visually interesting documentary? It's plastic. And uh, the people who I worked on that with, it was really two guys were in charge Lowell Bergman uh, and uh, Dave Rummel uh, were the main producers and Lowell was the correspondent and you might recognize his name because he was the guy that Al Pacino played in the movie The Insider, which was Mm -hmm. the movie about the tobacco industry and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, long story short, they made it very interesting and um, I was part of a team of producers on that and uh, it ended up winning all sorts of awards. It It was famous. Uh, in the world of documentaries because I think they took this subject that everybody had familiarity with. Everybody has credit cards in their wallets, but no one really knew at that time. This was around 2005. No one really knew how they worked. How do they really work? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I need to watch this documentary. I'm like, secret history of the credit card. Yeah. Well, honestly, I mean, back then it was before credit card reform. And there were all sorts of kind of practices going on in the industry, things like negative amortization, for example, meaning that uh, the minimum payment due was so low that if you paid at that rate forever, you would never pay the thing off. There were certain things that are now uh, not legal uh, in the credit card industry after the Credit Card Reform Act. And so people were really interested in figuring out the real terms and conditions of their credit card, what's in the fine print. And so it was real successful. It got a bunch of awards. It got an Emmy Award. It got a DuPont Award. Did you um, go to the Emmys? Did I did not go to the oh. – uh, I went – I'm trying to remember. This was so long ago. Did I go to – I remember I got, I got a, a, a plaque, like a certificate. It's in my office right now. And I'm trying to remember, did I get an Emmy? I definitely went to the DuPont Awards, but maybe – 
which is yeah, the epitome to... of journalism awards. I mean, if you, yeah, they, they have, have they named a hallway after you at Columbia? <laughs> I, I have, I think it's, I think I get the attic, maybe the basement. I'm not sure. No, I got nothing. <laughs> I haven't even finished paying off Columbia. Who do we have to call there to make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I think I got to finish paying off my student loans before I get anything named after me. That's what I tell them when they call me asking for money. And I'm like, yeah. I'll consider giving you more money when I finish paying you the money I already owe you. Yeah, that seems like an easy background check they could have made before they figure out who they're going to actually cold call. <laughs> yeah, totally. Anyway, so back to this story. I did this documentary, and then I went on to do other documentaries and other TV. I actually did some reality TV. I did a documentary about terrorism in Europe. That was another front line. I did a documentary with June Cross, who's also a professor at Columbia, about Hurricane Katrina. And then eventually, after working in documentaries, and television for a while, which was mainly freelance. I was getting married. I wanted something a little bit more stable. And I decided to take a full-time job at a internet startup uh, called TV360. Um, and uh, I worked there for uh, about a year or two and, uh, and kind of learned online media. I built kind of these internet television channels, essentially from scratch, working with a very small team. Um, and we kind of learned everything uh, as we did it. And and from there, I, I wanted uh, to get back into more traditional journalism. And that's where you come in. You referred me to the street mm-hmm. where I ended up becoming a managing editor of MainStreet.com, which was the personal finance site. And I, I really wouldn't have probably qualified for that job had I not worked on that documentary about the credit card industry because it was well known in the in the business and I had a background I had some personal finance chops as a result of that I understood how credit and credit scores and things like that worked uh, and so uh, that worked out I ended up getting that job and we overlapped there at the street you and I for a few uh, months a few months and then I got the boot along yeah. with like 15% of the company. And uh, so I was happy that I was able to bring you on board. And then at the time, I was very upset to get you know, told that I couldn't come back to work anymore. But honestly, as everyone knows who follows me, and I've talked about this, it was the greatest it was the greatest decision that I didn't have any control over <laughs> in my life. You know, getting laid off, you can look at it two ways. You can, you know, feel sorry for yourself, which I certainly did for a little bit. But then, you know, you you uh, understand the opportunities that await. And I uh, had the, have had a wonderful ride since. So I'm happy to have been there and I'm happy that they fired me, I suppose. <laughs> it's been amazing for you. Yeah, it's been I'll fun. never forget that day, though. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm calling you. You're calling. You I was okay. Let's just let's just be honest here. I was getting my haircut that day, and so I was not in the office. Worst thing to be doing when they're looking for you to lay you off at your company. I was outside getting my haircut, which, by the way, I was. They knew I was doing this. I was an on. T- I was on air talent. It was like I had to get my haircut, and I scheduled this and whatever. So I'm not this like diva that's like getting her hair done all day, but. I you're so calling and you're like, you me. should really be in the office right now, Farnoosh. And I'm like, why? What's going on? And you're like, just get over here. And yeah. I knew then and there that I probably should just stay at the salon longer because there was nothing good that was going to happen coming back to the office. And sure enough, um, I I was on my way back to the office when I got a call from HR and our editor-in-chief at the time saying – and I just knew. Like when they have HR on the phone, it's uh, usually not to wish you a, a happy birthday – 
it's uh, you're you're terminated. So um, that was my little layoff story. And no um, one would tell me. I was like, What's <laughs> going on? Well, I, I was, I thank you for trying to save my I, job somehow. I, I tried, and somebody said somebody said, "Well, I guess you know." She, maybe she shouldn't be getting her hair cut yeah, today. Right. She's on her talent, man. Yeah, man. She, she's, she's getting her hair cut for yeah. the company. How dare you? How dare you? It's in the budget, <laughs> okay? It's a line item in the budget. Shareholders are well aware. Um, but uh, we both left the street at at, 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 a, at a point, and, and then yeah. that's when you landed at credit.com. Um, uh, yeah. And so tell us about your role there. And I'm also curious to learn from your perspective what – is of top interest right now from consumers when it comes to credit. What do we not know that we need to know more about? Well, okay. I'll start first by just telling you what I do here. Essentially, when I came to credit.com, we did a lot. We did articles. We did content. But it wasn't organized as a essentially a newsroom in the more traditional sense. So my, I had had a lot of experience you know, at the street and other places, kind of working in traditional newsrooms and and producing a, a regular kind of stream of content, especially at, at the street. We were producing for Main Street like 50, 60 articles a week. And we really wanted to do that at credit.com too for a few reasons. Um, mainly though, because we wanted to be able to distribute content and essentially push content out to lots of third-party sites that would take our content in the same way that they do, that they take, you know, like the AP or any other kind of content syndication uh, network. So we're kind of a content syndication network focused on personal finance, credit and debt issues. And the reason why that's a, a great thing for us is because as, as these companies take our content, you know, big portals like Yahoo, MSN, AOL, uh, ABC, CBS, and uh, about a hundred different sites now take our content. They link back to us, and it's it's a way for you to put your stuff out there in a way that serves the uh, interests of the reader, because it's uh, it, it's a traditional journalistic operation with all of the kind of standards and practices of any other uh, journalistic operation: objective, fact-checked, um, edited, uh, well-researched, and um, and written stories. And as we push that stuff out there, we're able to uh, attract new readers and viewers to credit.com who engage with us over time. So it's, it's a really a way to, when you think about it from a business perspective, uh, broaden the top of the funnel, just more and more people come into contact with you as an entity, as a, as a media entity, as a consumer, uh, financial education entity, all these things happen as a result of being able to push out content and, and good news. And we do a lot of news. We do a lot of evergreen content and stuff like that. So that was really the idea why I came to credit.com was to build up. To be the uh, funnel mastermind. The, the funnel mastermind. That's, yeah, that's, that, I should put that on the business card. Funnel mastermind. <laughs> funnel mastermind TM. Mm -hmm. Funnel cake. Um, <laughs> uh, but, anyway, but, so. but humor aside, what you have – uh, the skill set that you have now as running credit.com, their editorial strategy, but also their content distribution strategy, uh, to share with us, because a lot of my listeners are in the blogging world or they're online entrepreneurs or they're interested in engaging more with an online audience. One tip you can share about building your audience engagement, maybe it's getting finding your funnel. How do you find your funnel, Mike? <laughs> 
That's a weird double entendre, I feel like. I didn't think so. Uh, I'm asking no, a question. You definitely did. You have a dirty so. mind. <laughs> um, find your funnel. Um, I, I think, you know, I did a talk about this uh, at, at uh, FinCon last year. FinCon is a, a conference for personal finance bloggers and writers and stuff like that. And it was, it was all about content distribution. And there are a lot of really important parts. There is establishing kind of a regular editorial calendar and standards. Um, to me, uh, you know, getting your stuff out there uh, is all about the relationships you have with people. So they know you, they know that you do stuff right, that you're not getting paid by people that you write about, that you're, you know, that you're fully transparent and that you're, um, and, and that you're doing it in a way that is, uh, is on the up and up and that your readers can trust what you're doing. And I mean, when I say not getting paid by people that you write about, everybody has advertisers, but you can't, you know, do a story about the five best credit cards for, you know, blank. And then, you know, the number one is somebody who's written you a check specifically for that purpose for $5,000 or something like that. And that's something that happens in this business a lot as more and more people get involved in the content business, right? Like, you know, the education that goes in, you know, we, you know, we, you know, I'll, I'll joke about journalism school aside. One of the things they teach you in journalism school are the ethics of essentially creating content. And that's really important. And it's not intuitive for everyone. They, you know, people who are new to this business that don't necessarily have a lot of experience in that don't know where the lines are. And I think spending some time learning that so that you can go out to uh, different other publications and say, hey, I, w I want you to consider running this article. You you can know and be secure that this article is is great f for these reasons. Here here are my standards. Um, is an important thing to do. I don't I don't know if uh, you know. I'm sure uh, you've come into contact with pieces of content in in your travels that you feel like were compromised in one way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but you're right. It's not intuitive, and that actually gets people in a lot of trouble. The FCC and FTC are both cracking down on this, mm -hmm. and um, I think it's more rampant now with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Now people are promoting things on there. That's not an article, but it's still an endorsement of su of some kind, even if it's just a few characters. It's journalistically unethical and unethical for other reasons too. I mean, you just, you need to be just, you need to be transparent. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that's a big part of it is kind of creating good content in a good way and then doing outreach and building up relationships and saying like, all right, well, here's a place that I, you know, whose audience I like, who I would love for this audience to be aware of my existence and figuring out what kind of a hole you could fill for them. And so that's essentially what we do, you know. So we what's the hot-button credit issue these days? I mean, the FICO just came out with a, a new score. I think it's a score, FICO score 9. I don't see so many ads now for get your free credit score here because I feel as though it's just become ubiquitous. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, credit.com gives away two free credit scores and we have this whole credit report card where we give letter grades, explain what the credit scores mean and all sorts of stuff. And there's this modeling software that tells you what your score will be if you start paying your stuff on time or reduce your debt. So there's, there's good technology there, but the reality is, is that, that people are able to get their credit scores from so many different places right now. 
that it has created kind of some unforeseen consequences. So, you know, you can get your credit score from your credit card company. You know, various credit card companies now give away uh, credit scores. There's FICO has a, a program called Open Access where they give away, they, they make credit scores available through like, through different credit card companies. And student lenders also are giving away credit scores now too. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, is that they have more than one credit score. They have lots of credit scores. There are lots of credit score models. So when they're getting credit scores from all these different places, from their credit card companies, from their student lender, from sites like ours and other free sites, they may be thinking, oh, all these credit cards, all these credit scores should be the same. Why are they not in agreement? And it's because there are so many different models and these different models of credit scores are fed from different data sources. So all of the credit bureaus, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax, feed into these models and they all have different data. The credit score you get from one provider is likely to be different from the credit score you get from a different provider. And that can be really confusing for people. They're getting their credit card bills around the same time each month and they're seeing different numbers out there. So to me, it's kind of like it, it's it's a well-intentioned move it, movement, meaning that all these financial institutions are giving away free data. Um, and that's that's transparency. And that's great. But at the same time, because of how complicated the system is, I mean, credit scores were never really meant when they were first created to be these consumer friendly tools. They were always meant to essentially make the lending process easier for financial institutions. Mm -hmm. But now because consumers want them, because consumers became aware of them, the institutions feel they have to give them away and let people know. Bernie Sanders, in fact, over a year ago, introduced a bill that that would make credit scores uh, free through a government mandated site, which is a tricky thing. It's, it's another well-intentioned idea, but credit scores and credit reports are very different. As you guys know, we're each entitled to a free credit report once a year through annualcreditreport.com. That's a federally mandated site. It's part, it's the law. You go there, you enter your information, you can get one of each of your reports from TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian once a year for free. It would be very hard to replicate that kind of thing for credit scores because there are hundreds of credit scores. Which right. one Who do you, you choose to go which with? Which one are you going to give away for free? I mean, mm -hmm. if the government were to choose one, it would essentially be like, you know, giving the thumbs up to one credit score provider, which is that, do they really want to do that? It, it's tricky. To, to make whoever's listening, like, <laughs> it's getting a little, like, Is, is this upset. wonky? I no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm super, I'm, I'm there with you, Mike. I'm, like, so nerdy. Mm -hmm. is, but I think the good, I guess the good news is, is that, or at least the better news is that it's it doesn't matter that you have a 731 from um, FICO, but then a 733 from some other source, or even within FICO, you might have several different scores. Because as long as it's all within a range... If you're above 700 or above 720, you're good. Yeah, uh, as, yeah. as long as it's, you're looking at the same range, like this, the, most FICO scores are 300 to 850. Right. There are certain other scores, like Vantage score used to be to nine, like 500 and 990, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. Don't, could be wrong on that. And then there are other scores that have different ranges. But you have to just know where you are, what's percentile you're basically in. Um, if, it's, it's, if it's in the excellent percentile for that, given score or if it's in the good or, or whatever. I mean, that, that's one of the good things about some of the sites, including, including ours, plug, plug, um, that it kind of tells you where you are relative to that range and other people. So you can see kind of exactly what this 
kind of random number means. So, and that's important um, because you're right. I mean, it's people are always going to get. Yeah, confused. I get some people who are like really anal about their credit scores, and I want to just say, you know, relax. As long as you're in this particular range, you're good to go. And I think even as we're recording this on September 14th, I, mm-hmm. I, I tape ahead of time and we'll air this uh, after the Fed meeting. So I'd be curious to see how much more traffic you're going to get to credit.com in the next several weeks as a result of people. I mean, I, I just got asked from the Today Show to do a piece on you know what rising credits uh, interest rates will mean for the credit environment. And um, you, you should know. totally bring me on the Today Show. Yeah. Right? Okay. Let's let's tag team it. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this, Michael. Let's transition out of the so many questions. I love talking about credit. I'm actually going to dedicate a whole episode to credit soon. Um, maybe you should have Sweet. you back on for that. What is your financial philosophy, Mike? Would you have one? A money mantra? Do I have a money mantra? I should, probably should have prepared something, right? <laughs> but you're so good on your feet. Why even bother? Yeah, seriously. Like, I think my money mantra is like get into the fetal position under your desk and hope that nothing goes wrong. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> um, always you know, bring your sneakers. I, yeah, no, I think my money mantra is uh, is talk about it. I mean, I think, and you know, I can I can only speak. Um, about my own life, you know, my wife, Vanessa, and, um, and I think, you know, we have a system that we're supposed to do. And sometimes we do it well. And sometimes we don't, where we really are supposed to talk about what's going on in our lives financially. And it's not easy or fun, usually. But to the extent that you can talk to your better half, and if you don't have a better half, make time to really go over the details and the minutia alone um, or, or with uh, some sort of partner in crime in one way, shape or form, you know, that's good. Don't just kind of think that it's under control and you're doing what you got to do. Even if you're right, it's good to check. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And talk about it. I guess that would be my very Keep it simple. Real. Yeah. Keep it real. Keep Don't it real. just, you know, don't get stuck in the cycles and just and and you got to stop and look every once in a while. Take us back down memory lane. I know you grew up in, I believe, Maryland. Yes, uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland. I love. I couldn't. I actually didn't believe that was a town. Like I'm like the Chevy Chase was. What came first, the actor or the town? The town came first. I've read this before. People used to tease Chevy Chase about this. I read that somewhere a long time ago. But yeah, the the, the town came first. And so very affluent part of America. What was your introduction to money, a memory that you had that now as an adult you look back and you're like, wow, that's a that was a big learning lesson or something that just to this day has stuck with you? I, my parents had a tough – my parents got divorced when I was in, in high school it's, it, at some point in high school. It was a long, longer process than I would have liked. But, um, and, and a lot of, I think the issues in our family centered around money and having different expectations. And without getting into, um, the details, I think that when you're in a relationship, it's inevitable that the two people are going to have different approaches to money. And sometimes they complement each other and sometimes they can make life difficult. And usually for most couples, I think it's both. Um, And uh, so I think without offering any solutions to that, because I don't have tons of solutions except for my my mantra, which was talk about it, I, I really learned how important money can be in a relationship. 
because of the impact it can have just to how people behave towards one another in ways that have nothing to do with money. Mm. You know what I mean? I can, I, there are times where if I'm stressed out about money, I can, can, I can turn into a complete asshole about stuff that has nothing to do with money. And it's, I, I think I learned that from a very young age that money can just impact your relationships, your psyche, your way of being in ways that we're not always aware of. It's not easy to control and it's, Definitely a work in progress. Who's better with money, you or Vanessa? I think she is. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She's just better at, A, she's better at record keeping and stuff like, I mean, if I, if I wasn't married to Vanessa, I'm, I, <laughs> my, my home situation would be a disaster. Like, if I, if it was a complete disaster. Ask her to tell you sometime about what my apartment was like before we moved in together. Let's not talk about that. Um, yeah, not I, on the air anyway. Wow. Um, send me a picture or something. Yeah, I think I burned all those right. pictures. It's partly, it's partly Ed's fault. He was my roommate at the time, but the two of us together did real damage. Um, but I would say she's good at um, – she's really good at keeping records, maintaining um, kind of a – a real eye on the ball, just making sure that we know what's going on. It's being documented. And I think then kind of the behavior adjustment part, you know, is stuff that you have to do in tandem. So, you know, keeping the record records is only important if you're, you know, taking action based on them. And mm-hmm. so that's stuff you have to do collaboratively. And when two people are really busy and have to make kind of financial decisions often at the spur of the moment, on the spur of the moment, then, you know, sometimes, you know, that doesn't happen as well as it should. Uh, and I, I'd say that's stuff that we have to work on collaboratively. Yeah. I don't think I'm particularly great at anything. Well, speaking of not being particularly great at, at that, um, what's your, what's a financial failure that you've experienced either long time ago or recently? And it doesn't have to be this, ca- you know, cataclysmic event. It just has to be something that you're not super proud of, but it was a good lesson, hard lesson learned. Financial failure. All right, here's one. This is this is like the epitome the epitome of stupidity. Um, I remember once I kept on getting tickets. I was living in Brooklyn, and I had a car, and I and I parked it on the street, and um, and I kept on getting tickets, and I would I I knew I had to pay the tickets. But for some reason, I just decided not to pay the tickets. I, I, I don't – it was this out of sight, out of mind thing. Was obviously, before we were married, Vanessa would never let this happen. But <laughs> Although we were late with the ticket recently, so that's funny. But um, so I, I just, you know, I just put it out of my head and I just – I literally – You were in denial. Was, I was in denial. It was like I was in the fetal position under my desk hoping that, you know, <laughs> this wasn't real. And it's you can do that. It's easy to do that with little things and big things. And so I did it and I did it and I must have gotten three or four tickets because anybody who knows about opposite side of the street, street cleaning mm-hmm. in Brooklyn knows that it just sucks and you have to – Mondays and Thursdays and Tuesdays and Fridays. You have to be really on top of it, which is why I live in the burbs now. Um, anyway, I uh, eventually walked down to my car and it was gone. And not only did I have to pay back the tickets because it got it got it got towed and impounded, I had it was like a five hundred dollar fine. Yeah. And I remember I was really angry about it, and I I was on the phone with my mother about something else, and I would, and I just griped about it, and she laid into me like. 
like she, she I don't know she might have called me an idiot on, on the yeah. phone. Yeah. You're like, "Mom, can you believe they like towed my car? I mean, I only didn't pay to my tickets, you know, yeah. for the past 2 years." <laughs> Pretty much. And she was just like, "What are you thinking?" And uh and I just I just remember that was a good lesson for me. I I've never done that like that again. I mean, I did afraid. it once. You were just Yeah. yeah. It wasn't the, the only time I – I remember I, in college, like when I first had a credit card, I just decided to not pay the bill. Like, so I've why. heard – this is more often – more common than than one might think. People just thinking, I'm not going to pay the bill, whether it's because they don't think they have to or they're, they don't have the money and they just want to pretend it doesn't exist. It, I, what I think it was is that I was in college living on my own the first for the first time in my life and I was like – no one is the boss of me, including these credit card companies. I'm just not going to pay. <laughs> like, sorry. Screw you guys. And then – Who do you think credits- you are? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm the boss of me now. And then, then you know, I got late payment after late payment. And I was like, I don't care. Whatever. And then eventually <laughs> I paid the stuff off. Oh, oh, I remember. I it went to One of them went to a debt collector and I was like um, – Did credit.com check your credit before they hired you? By the time I got to credit.com – You were good. I was good. Although when I did that secret history of the credit uh, credit card documentary, we all checked our credit scores. And at that time, it was it was the first time any of us had checked credit scores. Back then, 2004, 2005, yeah. no, one, no one was doing that back then. But I, I, we all did it. And I, I saw all this stuff that I had done in college on my credit report. Gulp. And yeah, it was hilarious. What was and your I, score? Did you know then? What Did you have a score? Think my, I think I started to come back by that, and it was in the low seven hundreds. It was wow. like, wow, it was it was wasn't Time great. Heals. It does, it does. But you know, I remember, I remember feeling like I, at one point one of the the credit cards went to a collection agency, and I think I I did a deal with them where I paid like mm-hmm. I saved fifty bucks or something. Like I didn't have to pay the whole debt, you know, because you can negotiate with debt collectors. They've they've paid pennies on the dollar for this debt. So if you pay them half of what you owe, they usually make out fine. And right. you make out fine, except for you don't make out fine because now your credit report has this negative item on it, which stays on there for seven years and all of your interest rates on all your other stuff can go up. Um, it's called universal default. That's one of the other things that people don't know about is that, you know, you can have a problem with one credit card and it can impact the interest rates on other loans. Oh, yeah, for and sure. So, and so I learned the hard way. Um, all good context and content as now running credit.com. I'm going to skip the success story because um, we're running a little bit out of time. Because, And I'm also more curious about your habits, your financial habit, number one, that you practice. Now, you did mention that you are very communicative with Vanessa and that really helps you with your finances as part of your money mantra about, you know, just get help, talk about it, don't go it alone. But what is one thing that you do maybe on a on a regular basis that's um, very, very Mike that you do that helps you um, at least maybe not manage your money, but maybe make spending decisions? Like, would you ever have a thought process before you buy something? Yeah, I just... I'm trying to think. I mean, listen, I'm not, you know, every, everybody needs to splurge every once in a while, but you just have to ask yourself, is this a, a what I do? Is this, a, is this a nice to have or a need to have? Mm-hmm. You know, there are some, certain things you need to get. And then, you know, you can always, you know, let's say you need a new headset for your home, for your phone or something like that. You need it. You use it all the time. It's, it's 
it's, it's something that you need to have for productivity and you've decided it's something you need. Well, there are lots of headsets out there. There's $20 headsets. There's $300 headsets. And you just and bought a Beamer. So was that a nice to have or a need to have? It's a, it's a least. <laughs> it's a least to have. <laughs> it's a least to have. Um, nice one, Farnoosh. Definitely getting my car um, <laughs> on the show. Yeah, that's, uh, that, was a, that was definitely a nice to have. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I decided to go for, for that one for a lot of reasons. We had a crazy year. Um, actually, and this kind of gets into – this is kind of another money lesson, but my dad had a, a traumatic brain injury and um, we've essentially spent the last year, eight months or so, um, taking care of him. He's been in the hospital essentially consistently for, for eight months and had to, my sister and I and my wife have had to figure out how to deal with his finances um, and, and just take care of his entire life. You know what I mean? And there's all sorts of stuff that's come up, you know, from the sale of the home to just a, like a house full of stuff to how you're going to pay for, you know, care for, uh, the, for an extended period of time, all this stuff. Um, you know, I will say that my background in personal finance has informed what I do mm -hmm. and the decisions that I make there in a big, big way. Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, the car, just to get back to that was probably that purchase was made to some extent because I was like, you know, sometimes you make purchases because you feel like you're going through such a shitty time mm -hmm. um, and you want something to make you feel good. And I think that if I'm really honest, like as stupid as sometimes I feel about that, that's probably what's happening there. And, um, but I, I, I like driving it and I could afford it. So. <laughs> yeah. You like driving. I was going to say, you like driving it. You can afford it. Yeah. And, um, and if you can't, well, it's a lease and it'll be up soon anyway. Um, yeah, by yeah. the way, this is going to be my first explicit interview on so money. I'm not going to edit out the curse words. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention it on <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> It'll have the E next to it, like a rap, video, like a rap music. Oh, great. Or something. I'm, I'm just... Can you tell how long it's been since I've listened to music? I just called it a rap music CD. <laughs> rap music CD. <laughs> you like the hip hop furnish? <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, are the Hanson brothers still a thing? Um, They're good, actually. Hanson, those guys actually, they are still a thing. And that's actually a really interesting money story. I can't believe I actually know a Hanson Brothers what? money story. <laughs> yeah, they started, I think they 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 started their own let, label. They got tired of the oh, music. Oh, good for them. They created their, and they're pretty funky. I'm a musician. Mm. Um, and uh, I have to say, I've like, you know, some pretty soulful stuff. And they wanted to get out of the business of having, you know, I think record labels telling them what to do and things like that. I, I listened to a podcast about this, I think, uh, a year or two ago. So I could be wrong about all this. But if I'm not mistaken, the Hansons have some lessons about how to become an independent artist mm -hmm. uh, in a world uh, where for musicians, almost like any kind of content creator, it becomes – it's becoming more and more complicated, although there are lots more opportunities to go direct to consumer because of essentially the internet being this amazing distribution tool that anybody can take advantage of. 
Well, I'm so glad I, I, I inserted Hanson Brothers into that bad joke because um, now I know Me so too. much more about the, how the music industry works. Thanks for that, Mike. <laughs> no um, problem. Let's do some So Money Fill in the Blanks and then I'll let you go. I'll cut you loose. Okay. Um, if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million, I just knocked on your door and dropped off a bag. The first thing I would do is… Probably just pay off all the debt, all the student loan debt, any other the mortgage, all that mm-hmm. stuff, and just be free and clear. And then, then you know, fully fund college, do all the basic stuff, and then figure out a way to have the most fun. I mean, as a family for the rest of our lives, I guess you know. I love it, and I'm always free to hang out. By the way, yeah, no, yeah, well, we'd invite you guys over. <laughs> that decision making process. My um. Why, why one expense that makes my life easier or better is? That car, I think. Yeah. It, it is, you know, it definitely, you know, and there's, you know, it, it, that one pops to mind because, I, you know, it's fun to drive something that's like a new toy and all that stuff. But I think there are lots of little expenses that, you know, think about all the apps that you've bought that make your life a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. The subscription to the music service that takes care of you on your on your train ride or whatever it is. I think um, there are lots of things that we, that we pay for now that accomplish that, but they're, they're, they're almost like micro payments. They're like $5 here a month, $7 there. And they do add up is I guess my, my word of caution about that. The one thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. I I think, I, I think because my parents clashed about money so often, I just had this kind of skewed, idea of of its importance and i think it i think i probably thought it was more important and less important than it really is in different ways i just don't think i had a good appreciation mm-hmm. for how to manage it and i, I with I, you, we'd have to spend a couple hours in therapy to get any more <laughs> precise than that but that's you know i think you learn you learn so much from your parents and um and i'm not bad mouthing them at all like i learned a lot of good things about money um, from my parents too. But I think overall, I probably just like uh, had slightly skewed understanding of what kind of a place it should kind of have in your life. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's still, and, and maybe that goes for everybody. You know what it's I mean? It's a work in progress. Yeah. I don't think I'm special in that way. I just think that, um, you know, we don't have a great system in this country for educating kids about money. It's not, it's not part of, you know, there's no financial education in school, really, not, not systematically. And I think that leaves it to kind of families who have learned in any number of ways how to deal with money and uh, may, may be more or less communicative with their kids as a result of not having any formal training themselves. So I think we're all left to kind of our, our own devices. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I wish there was a little bit more financial education in my life, not just by them, but, you know, in the schools. For better or for worse, we're left to our parents and our um, our families to help us learn right from wrong. But at the very least, you acknowledge your context, you know, and you're like, this is what it was and I'm going to take from what I can, learn from that and uh, leave, us, leave, leave behind the stuff that I don't like. When I donate, I like to give to blank because... Well, I, you know, I was on the board of a, a charity called Seed Artists this past year, and I still am, actually. And we put together a jazz festival in my town, Montclair, New Jersey. And for me, I, you know, I gave some money, too, but I gave a lot of time 
more than more than money, you know, time and expertise and stuff like that. And I guess that I like to um, I like to give to places where I can see the impact. In this case, I really could. We we put together this festival that ultimately benefited you know, various organizations having to do with uh, jazz education and arts education and helping. Um, kind of, there are a lot of aging jazz artists who are really really don't have a lot of money and need support. I mean, there's there's a lot of them don't have any retirement money, and so you could really see, I guess, the impact both for the kids and and the seniors. Who are who are being helped by this, and I got to participate in something that was creative, and so for me, it kind of it had all of those things, and I had the time to do it, so that's what I I liked um, about all of that. I don't know, that's not the clearest answer, but uh, no, I know what you mean, and and you know. um, it's important to feel as though what you're contributing is really making a direct impact, because a lot yeah. of times it it it's possible that it does not. It goes to pay for overhead. Yeah, and there are great sites like Cherry and Aria where you can really see, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, if it's being to what extent the money is being used for administrative costs versus actually helping the people, or it's supposed to help. But for me, it was just nice to be able to participate in, in, in the helping. And right. you know, some places you just have to write a check, and that's fine too. Um, but for me, it was it was great to see it all in action. And now you have the memories. Mm-hmm. Totally, it was a good show. And last but not least, I'm Michael Schreiber. I'm so money because because I know Farnoosh Tarabi. <laughs> I knew no, her way back. When. Something else. Yeah. Give me I, something I, else. Oh, come we on. already know that. That, that. I mean, that was a good answer, though, because you created the so money. You know, I remember when you actually first came out with this book. Um, I'm so money because. Um, I think I'm working hard and getting a little bit better every year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not revolutionizing anything. And I'm speaking personally. Um, you know, it's a work in progress for all of us. Those of us who work in this business, those of us who um, are just on struggling to get better. And I think, I think I am getting better every year. I think you know each year is a little bit better than the previous one. Not that there aren't setbacks within um, those years, but I think if I look at the continuum overall, it's, it's a nice, nice line up and to the right. Um, if, <laughs> you know, so that's it's a nice I, curve. Yeah. Thank yeah, you I'll so take. much, Michael Thank Schreiber. Um, uh, really, you're one of my best friends. So I'm yeah. really, it's an honor to have you on the show uh, to learn more about you, your financial mindset, and also to share with the world all the good work that you're doing with credit.com and educating people about their credit health. So good luck to you, continued success, and I'll see you um, by the pool or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I love this podcast. You are fantastic and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Mike. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Mike Schreiber, visit his website at credit.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Schreibot, S-C-H-R-E-I-B-O-T. All this information at somoneypodcast.com. You can also grab the transcript and comments and ask me a question about the show, about money, about career, babies. I answer your questions every Friday on the So Money Podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and connecting with all of you. In the meantime, uh, happy Monday. Hope the rest of your week is so money. And I hope to see you back here tomorrow. Take care.